Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack. They've been helping us put on the show for years, and they just launched an awesome new product called Profiles. It makes it easy to build an identity graph and complete customer profiles right in your warehouse for Data Lake. You should go check it out at rudderstack.com today. Welcome back to the Data Stack Show. Costas, super excited for the topic today. So we're going to talk with Stefan from Dagworks. He developed a really interesting technology at Stitch Fix called Hamilton. And, you know, we actually haven't talked about DAGs a ton on the show. Airflow's kind of come up here and there. And Hamilton's a fascinating take on this where you sort of declare functions and it sort of produces a DAG that makes it much easier to test code, understand code, and actually produce code, which is pretty fascinating. And this is all in the Python ecosystem, ML stuff. It's very cool. I want to know what led Stefan from originally kind of working on some of these end use cases. So building, you know, an experimentation platform, you know, for testing, for example, or an experimentation framework for testing and all the data and the trimmings that go into that to going far deeper in the stack and actually building sort of platform level tooling that enables the building of those tools, if that makes sense. So to me, that's a fascinating journey, very difficult problem to solve from a developer experience standpoint. But uh, yeah, excited to hear about his journey. How about you? Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to learn more about Hamilton, the project itself, and the whole journey from yeah, coming up with like the programming side, Stitch Fix, and ending up with like an open source project that currently is like the foundation for a company. So that's like definitely like something that I would like to chat about with Stefan and get deeper into what Hamilton is because these kind of systems like similarly to like what DBD also does right like they have like a lot of value but they are also rely a lot on like the people like using it and adopting these solutions so I want to hear from Stefan about that, like how we can actually do this and how we can, you know, like onboard people until they figure out like the value of actually using something like this in their like everyday work. All right. Well, let's dig in and talk about DAGs, Python, and Hamilton. Let's do it. Stefan, welcome to the Data Stack Show. So excited to chat with you. So many questions. But first, of course, give us kind of your background and what led you to starting Dagworks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so Dagworks, I'm the CEO of Dagworks, Dag for Director at Psychograph. We're a recent YC batch graduate. And at a high level, we're simplifying ETL pipeline management targeting ML and AI use cases. In terms of you know my background, how I got here to be CEO of a small startup, I you know, came over here to Silicon Valley back in 2007. I did an internship at IBM and then I went to grad school at Stanford. Since then, I you know, finished a master's in computer science, you know, right at the time when it was still classically trained. So all the deep learning stuff was just all the PhDs were doing. So I'm still kind of catching up on coursework there, but otherwise 
I've been, I worked at companies like LinkedIn, uh, Nextdoor, where I was engineer number 13, and did a lot of initial things, a small, then I went to a small startup at Ebon that crashed and burned, which was a, a good time. But otherwise, before starting the company, I was at Stitch Fix for six years, helping data scientists streamline their model productionization efforts. All right. Love it. And give us, just go one click deeper with Dagworks, right? You know, so I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with Dag sort of in a general sense, but you're starting a company around it. So can you go one click deeper and tell us, you know, what does the product do? As a startup, we're still evolving, but effectively we're trying to, you know, if you're, for the practitioners listening, if you've ever inherited an ETL or a pipeline that you were horrified by, or had you know had to come in and you know debug something you've even written yourself, and uh, it's it's failing slightly because of you know upstream data changes or code changes you you weren't aware of because your teammate kind of made them or something, right? We're essentially trying to solve that problem because we feel that you can get things to production pretty easily these days, but really the problem mm-hmm. then becomes how do you maintain and manage these over time such that you don't slow down. And you can, you know, you know, rather than when someone leaves spending six months to rewrite it, you know, this should be a standard, more standard way to kind of maintain, manage, and therefore kind of operate these, you know, data and ML pipelines. Yep. I love it. Well, tons of specific questions there, but let's rewind just a little bit. So at Nextdoor, you said, you know, you were very early and you built a lot of first things, right? So you sort of the data warehousing, data lake, you know, infrastructure, testing infrastructure for experimentation, et cetera. So you were sort of really on the front lines, like shipping stuff that was, you know, hitting production and sort of, you know, producing test results and all that sort of stuff. And now you're building tool, you know, really platform tooling for the people who are going to enable those things. And so I would just love to hear about what, you know, tell us about your experience at Nextdoor you know, launching a bunch of those things, did that influence the way that you thought about platforms? Because I would guess, I mean, you know, I could be way wrong, but you were building a lot of point solutions that weren't a platform and then probably eventually needed to be a, you know, sort of platform tooling at scale. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So if I get off track, feel free to bring me in. But yeah, I mean, I want to say, so before going to Nextdoor, I was actually at LinkedIn where, you know, I had, the opportunity to see, you know, an, a, a larger company with a bit of established infrastructure. So, for example, they, they had a Hadoop cluster and saw all the problems yeah. of, you know, you know, writing jobs, uh, trying to maintain, understand, debug, you know, trusting a data set. Can I, you know, use mm. this to build a better model, right? And so, the allure of Nextdoor was like, hey, it's a small, it's a, hey, it's, a, it's also a social network. Like, they're going to be building or needing these things. Can I build them out there? So that was part of the motivation, and also like. You know, I liked building product as much as like I liked kind of building kind of the infrastructure of things, right? And so, so I think from that perspective, you know, going from zero to one and having a blank canvas is like you know terrifying and exciting at the same time. Yeah. Back then, like it was a very different environment as as it is now because now there's a lot of vendors, a lot of off the shelf solutions. But back then, you had really had to kind of you know build most of the things yourself. I mean, AWS was just in its infancy. I you know, I remember getting a demo of Snowflake, right? When they were like just building things out, right? And so yeah, so next door I got really you know the opportunity to, you know, got the keys to AWS effectively, you know, and uh, to try to solve business problems. The first one, for example, being, you know, we need a data warehouse. Because up until that point, they were actually running 
queries off of the production databases so wow. if you were we're working on a if you were using the site on a sunday is it could you know <laughs> things could have been impacted because of you know the queries and things or at least they were getting to sort of the scale where the queries were at least, yeah. at least off the read replicas were you know we're locking them up right and so so having seen you know this is where partly like if you have to think of things from first principles and like and see how the sausage is made as uh, as the expression goes, like I think you kind of get a better appreciation for the things that you can build on top, and then also potentially the, you know, the decisions you make lower level down, how they eventually kind of impact you uh, at a high level. So, and next to one of the things I kind of built out was a, you know, an A/B testing experimentation system, for example, and then you know trying to connect that all the way back with, you know, things that happen on the website to so you can do inference, so you can. It, it was pretty easy. Or we made it much easier to, you know, if you wanted to create a change, you know, you could feature flag it, turn it on, and then, you know, get some yeah. metrics and telemetry. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess in terms of, you know, like what, going to say a place like uh, uh, Stitch Fix, which, you know, I had, I had a, a startup hop in between, right? I think I realized that. One, I, you know, I'm not excited by giving a data set and figuring out what to do with it. I'm actually more excited about building the tool. So I had a great time building experimentation stuff. I had uh, like a LinkedIn prototyping content-based kind of recommendation infrastructure as well, right? And so which case I realized that I guess my passion was more, you know, helping other people be more successful. And so yep. which case Stitch Fix with its allure of a lot of different modeling problems. So it wasn't a, a shop that just wanted to optimize, say, ad targeted ads, right? It was actually had a lot of different problems and we're hiring a lot of people to solve them. That's great. So what so when you went to Stitch Fix, did you were you hired specifically to work on platform and tooling stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the so one of the reasons why I left Nextdoor was because I was you know, I realized that you know machine learning wasn't quite a key to the company. Like I could build things myself, but I wanted to be part of a team to, you know, bounce ideas often you know work at a place that you know valued it or it was a little more core uh, to what it was doing so i actually went to an nlp for enterprise startup uh, for that purpose where i got to kind of delve into like how do you build a machine learning models on top of spark and then get them to production right unfortunately that you know that was it was a good roller coaster ride but the company ran out of money had to fold and so then i realized yeah i was like i wanted to build more of these you know platforms and so in which case at stitch fix yeah they uh, were you know avant-garde at the time where they're actually hiring out a platform team pretty early to help mm. enable and build out you know kind of self-service infrastructure for data scientists so rather than the model for those who don't know stitch fix if it's a personal styling service so if you don't like shopping and picking out your own clothes it's a great kind of service uh, for you uh, but very early on they had a, a team and environment where they hired data scientists who were in their own organization they weren't attached to marketing or engineering they were their own organization oh interesting uh, and they were tasked with building, taking prototyping, and then taking uh, and engineering the things that were required to get to production. And so, but they hired, it was starting, uh, you know, hiring our platform team to slowly, you know, rather than data scientists having to build a lot of engineering work themselves, like slowly bring in part of the abstractions and layers to help uh, make self-service easier. So for example, you know, the platform team owned Jenkins and, you know, the the Spark cluster mm. and then, you know, setting up Kafka and then, the Redshift instance, and then helping, you know, and, and so I was part of, you know, a team that was more focused on the, okay, how do you get machine learning and then plug it back into the business? So part of my journey was building actually, you know, one team that was focused on 
backend kind of model deployment, another on setting up the centralized experimentation infrastructure, and the, the third one being what we call model lifecycle, which is you know, end-to-end, like how do we actually speed up uh, getting a model from development to production? Makes total sense. Now, can we dig into the self-service piece of that a little bit? So when you came to SearchFix, it sounds like culturally they had sort of committed to, we want to enable more self-service. Can you talk about who specifically in the org needed self-service and what were the problems they were facing? Like what were the bottlenecks that not having, you know, tooling for self-service was creating? Yeah. I, I want to mention, so there's a, I think a pretty reasonable kind of summary of, uh, of kind of what things were at the time. Uh, the My former VP, Jeff Magnuson, wrote a post, a pretty famous one called Engineers Shouldn't Write ETL. Uh, so if you haven't yeah. seen that post or haven't heard of it, I can take a look at it. But effectively, I mean, part of the thesis was that, you know, being handed over work, thrown over a wall at someone isn't very happy work for that person. And they're also kind of disconnected from business value. And so the idea at StitchFix was, well, you know, can we, the data scientist, the person who has has the idea, but is also talking, say, with the the business partner. So at StitchFix, each data science team was effectively partnered with, you know, some sort of team marketing, you know, operations, styling, merchandise, right? And so they were trying to help those teams make better decisions. And so the thought was, you know, iteration loops are key in terms of machine learning differentiating. So how can we speed up this loop? Easiest way to speed up this loop is the person who's building it can also take it to production and then, you know, close the loop and then iterate and make better decisions that way. So that was really, you know, the philosophical kind of thesis as to what it was. And so um, and so I want to say it, it wasn't necessarily like a, a problem. It was more like, hey, this is the framing. This is how we want to operate, in mm. which case then the framing of the platform team is like, yeah, how can we build in capabilities and provide an easier time for that data scientist to, you know, do get more get more done without engineering it themselves. But we went on anyone's critical path, so there was like there was oh, a bit of like, not obviously if you wanted to use Spark cluster, you had to use you know, the cluster. But in terms of right. you know APIs to read and write, there was you know there was a lot of before the platform team came in, people were writing their own tools and solutions, right? Sure. So Stitchfix hired very capable you know PhDs from various walks of life that weren't computer scientists or background, but you know, some of them knew that they could abstract things. In so which case, you know, part of it was, you know, competing with data scientists in-house abstractions and trying to, you know, gain ownership of them as a platform team to better manage them. Yeah, well, I was gonna ask about that because you know, you're okay, self-service, let's make the cycle time faster. You know, that sounds really great on the surface. But, you know, you're talking about like you know, multiple data scientists, you know, sort of working for different internal stakeholders who have already built some of their own tooling. Was it challenging? You know, was there pushback or was generally people were excited about it? I mean, I know the tool eventually had to prove itself out and get adoption internally, but culturally, what was it like to enter that, you know, sort of mandate, I guess, if you will? I mean, it was, I mean, a mixed bag. I mean, like it depends so a very academic type environment, so very much open to suggestion and discussion, very high communication bar. So there was like a weekly, what was called beverage minute, where you could kind of present, talk about things. And that's where kind of people did. And that was your kind of forum to disseminate stuff. And so people were always eager to learn best practices, right? I think, you know, people being practically minded, like if they build it and they're like, well, I don't have that problem, you know, why should I use your tool? 
All right. Yeah. Why should I bother using spending time? Like, I mean, very, coming from very practical concerns of like, you know, what's in it for me, right? Mm. So that that's if anything was a bit of a challenge. Like, if some team had a little bit of a solution, but no, not the other teams did. You know, you could get the other teams on, but that one team would be like, well, I don't think right. the opportunity cost <laughs> is, sure. is there yet, right? Yep. Yep. That makes total sense. Okay. So one of the big pieces of work that came from your efforts at Stitch Fix was Hamilton, you know, which is intimately tied to DAG work. So can you set the stage for where Hamilton came from inside of Stitch Fix and sort of the, maybe the particular flavor of problem that it was solving? Yeah. So one of, uh, it was, yeah, it was built for a data science team. So one data science team and one of the oldest teams there basically had a code base that was basically, you know, five, six, six years old at that point, gone through a lot of, you know, team members and things. And so it wasn't written, you know, structured by, you know, people with a software reading background. But effectively, they had to forecast things about the business that the business could make operational decisions on. And, and so they're basically doing time series forecasting. And what is pretty common mm. in time series forecasting is that you are continually adding and updating the code because things change in the business, thing, yep. time moves, you need to account for it, right? And so sure. one way that you do that is you write kind of inputs or features, right? And so at a high level, uh, it, 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 the you know, getting a forecast up or like the pipeline or the ETL at a high level for a forecast was pretty, you know, uh, you could say simple or, or you know, pretty standard, you know, only a couple of steps. But the software, the challenges of adding, maintaining, updating, and changing the code that was yeah. within, you know, at a high level in, the, in that macro pipeline was really what was the challenge and what was really slowing them down. They were also operationally always under the gun because they, you know, had to provide things that business needed to make decisions on. You know, they had to model different scenarios and certain things. And so, in which case, you know, they weren't in a position to really, you know, do things themselves. In which case, you know, manager came to the platform team was like, hey, help. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, what I found really was like, it was, you know, this at the, the macro pipeline wasn't the challenge. It was the code within the steps that needed to be changed and updated. Right. And so this is where like, yeah, getting to production was easy, but now the maintenance aspect of like maintaining, changing, updating was really the struggle. Yeah. Uh, and so with Hamilton, the idea was, you know, how can we, you know, it was, this was a, a plus for a work from home Wednesday. So if there was no work from home Wednesday, I might not have come up with this, but I had a full day to kind of think about this problem and kind of analyzing and looking at their code. It was a lot of effectively what they were trying to do. Well, one of the biggest problems was they needed to create a data set or a data frame uh, with thousands of columns. Um, mm. And because with time series forecasting, it's very easy for to create new inputs. They're derivatives of other, co other columns. And so the ability to express the transforms was really, and be confident that like, if you change one, like you don't mm. know what's downstream of it. All the dependencies, yeah. Because the code base was so big, it was, you know, it was, wasn't, yep. you know, that, that well-structured, right? And so I uh, came up with Hamilton, where effectively I was like, I was trying to make it as simple as possible from a process perspective of given an output, how can you quickly and easily map that back to code and the definition for it, right? And so if Hamilton at a high level is a micro framework for describing data flows, right? And so a data flow is essentially compute and data movement. This is exactly what they were doing with their you know, process to create this large data frame, given some source data, put it through a bunch of transforms, create a table. And so Hamilton was kind of created from that problem of like, yeah, the software engineering need. And I, I mean, I could dive into more details of how Hamilton works, but I'm going to first ask whether 
I've given enough high level context. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that, that's super helpful. And one thing I actually want to drill into because I want to hand the mic off to Casas in a second and dig into the guts of, of how Hamilton works. But we're talking about time series data and especially around features specifically. One of the things that's interesting about Hamilton sort of being, you know, let's say, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit here, but more sort of declarative rather than imperative mm-hmm. is that it creates a much more flexible environment, at least, you know, from me to green out that in terms of definitions, right? Because one of the problems with time series data and definitions is that if a definition changes, which it will, and you have a large code base, it's not that you can't get a current view of how that definition, you know, looks with your snapshot data, but it's actually going back and sort of recomputing and updating everything historically in order to like, you know, rerun models and all that sort of stuff, which is really interesting. Were you thinking a lot about the definition piece with Hamilton and sort of making it easier to create definitions that didn't require, you know, like updating a hundred, you know, different points in the code? Yeah. I mean, so the, if effectively, yeah, if you can make it really simple to make output to, to code, then logic, that means there's only really like one place to do it. And so what one part of the problems you know with the code base that it was before was you know there wasn't a good testing story there wasn't a good documentation Mm. story hard to see dependencies between things and then when you updated something you didn't know to your point like how confident you were in like what you actually changed or impacted right yeah because uh, you know everything was effectively in a large script where you had to run everything to test something so there was this kind of real inertia to really Mm. yeah or, or a lot of energy required to understand changes and impacts. Yeah. And so effectively, by rewriting things as functions, which I'll kind of we'll dig into, it helps really abstract and encapsulate what the dependencies are. And so therefore, if you are going to make a change, it's very much, much easier to logically reason than and find, say, in the code base, like who, you know, the upstream and downstream dependencies of this. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes, you have a far more procedural methodical way that you can then kind of add, update, and change workflows. Whereas before, if you kind of, it's a script or like wherever software engineering practices you're kind of using, you have to, you know, take a lot more care and concern when you do that. But with Hamilton, it's kind of, the paradigm kind of forces you to do things in a particular way that makes, you know, this particularly beneficial for, you know, changing, updating, and maintaining. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's amazing. Even if, you know, even on teams that really are diligent about, best practices with software engineering. It's amazing as code bases grow, the amount of tribal knowledge that's needed to make significant changes. You know, you always end up with a handful of people who know all of the nooks and the crannies, you know, and sort of that one dependency that's, you know, the, you know, the killer when you push to production without tinkering with it. One thing for the readers, I think since your audience is probably familiar with DBT, I want to say yeah. Hamilton's very similar, I guess, in what DBT did for SQL, right? Mm. Before DBT was a bit of the wild west of how you maintain and manage your SQL files, yeah. how they yeah. link together, right? How do you test, document them, right? Hamilton kind of does the same, pretty much the same thing, but for, you know, Python function, Python transforms, right? And so it gives you this very opinion and structured way that you end up actually, you know, being more productive and being able to write and manage more code than you would otherwise, which I think, you know, DBT kind of did for the SQL world. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Costas. I've been monopolizing and I know you have a ton of questions about how this works. I do too. 
please. Yeah, you can get back in the conversation whenever you want, so don't be shy. <laughs> uh, so, Stefan, first question. What makes Hamilton an ML-oriented framework? Why it is like for, for ML, right? Like writing ETL for ML, what's, and yeah. not for something else, right? I want to say it, it, it comes, its roots are definitely you know, machine learning oriented. It can be, you know, like effectively what I was describing was a feature engineering a problem for time series forecasting, right? I mean, Hamilton, since then, we kind of added and adjusted it to, to operate over you know, any Python object type because it was initially focused on pandas. Now it isn't. I effectively kind of call it, it's a bit of a Swiss army knife in that you could, anything you can model in a DAG or at least a, if, if we would have draw a workflow diagram, Hamilton's maybe the, one of the easiest ways to kind of directly write code that, map, that maps to it. But specifically, you know, I think, you know, Python and machine learning are very coupled together. Software engineering practices are hard. In, in machine learning, in which case, you know, you know, I feel, you know, Hamilton specifically is trying to target the, you know, the software engineering aspects of things, in which case I think machine learning and kind of data work is least mature there. And so very waffly answer is that like, you know, its roots are from that. And so therefore I think it's, it's targeting more of those problem spaces, but people have been applying Hamilton to, to much wider use cases than just machine learning. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I always finding like very fascinating to hear like from practitioners like you about like the unique challenges that the ML workloads have compared like to any other data workload, right? For, I, I mean, I, I mean, it's it, like Hamilton is actually a little less around work, workloads and more about team process and, and code that helps define those yeah. things, right? Since, you know, individuals build models or data or, you know, artifacts, right? But teams own them, right? And you yeah. need kind of different practices to make it work, right? I mean, there's the infrastructure side of like, how do you, you know, feature in, do feature engineering over, you know, gigabytes of data, but then there's also like, well, how do you actually maintain the definition of the code to ensure that it's correct, that, you know, it can live a long prosperous life when you leave, someone else can inherit it. Right. And so Hamilton is kind of, you know, starting from that angle first of like, but definitely I, I could see a future where it can, you know, it, you can use it on Spark, you can use it in a notebook, you can use it in, in, in a web service, anywhere that Python runs. Right. So definitely it has integrations and extensions that definitely also extend out to more of the data processing side. Yep, yep. And okay, so let's change like the question a little bit. And instead of like talking about like the workloads, let's talk about like the teams and like how ML teams and the people in these ML teams might be like different than like a data engineering team or a data infra team, right? So tell us a little bit more about that, like how things are different for ML teams compared to I don't know, like a BI team, right? I mean, so, so there's, there's a bit of nuance here because depending on like if you're applying machine learning to then go into an online setting or if it's only all in an offline world, right? There's slightly different kind of SLAs and tolerances. Most data scientists, machine learning engineers I know don't have computer science backgrounds. And I want to say it's probably almost even true for data engineers I know as well, right? But effectively, you're trying to couple data and compute together in a way that, you know, yields a statistical model representation that then you can kind of, you know, which is some bytes in memory that then you want to kind of ship out. How you get there and how you produce it really, I think, impacts how the company operates, how the team operates, the ease and effectiveness that you can kind of, you know, quickly get results. So I want to say, it, it, yeah, there's a lot more, you know, focus on, you know, you could say, you could say this way where MLOps is, you know, trying to become like a, 
a DevOps practice, right? Where it's kind of giving you the guiding principles on how to kind of operate and manage things. But that's, um, and then I guess in terms of, you know, how it relates to like other things, I actually think machine learning is it's a bit of a, and workflows are a superset of analytics workflows, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's, it's, you actually set the same problems exist on the analytics side, maybe obviously slightly different focuses and kind of endpoints, but effectively, you're effectively generally using the same infrastructure or reusing it is a better term. And then you're generally connecting, I have to connect and intersect with that world as well. And so I want to say it's, it's more of a superset of that. And, you know, it has therefore slightly more different challenges because the things that you produce are more likely to then end up in other places like, you know, online in a web service versus, you know, analytics results, which just are only served from a, a dashboard and look. Okay, that's great. So, okay, you mentioned at some point when we were discussing with Eric that like Hamilton is like an opinionated way of like doing things around like a man, right? Like, and you gave like a, I think like a very good example, like for people like to understand other with DBT, right? Like where mm-hmm. DBT came and put some kind of guardrails there on like how things should be getting done, right? Can you take us a little bit like through that? Like, what does this mean? Like how the world is like perceived from the lenses, like from the point of view of like Hamilton? Yeah. What are like the terminology used, right? Yeah. Like DAGs, uh, data frames. Tell us a little bit about the vocabulary and like all these things that we should know, like to understand the fundamentals of, of Hamilton. Sure. So as I said, you know, Hamilton's a, a, a micro framework for describing data flows. So I say micro framework in that it's embeddable anywhere that Python runs. It doesn't contain state and all it's doing is really kind of helping you, you can say, orchestrate code. It is a, not a macro orchestration system as opposed to something like Airflow, Prefect, Dagster, which contains state and you think of tasks as computational units. Hamilton, instead, you think of things, the units are functions. And so rather than writing procedural code where you're assigning, say, a, a column to a, a data frame object in Hamilton, instead, you would rewrite that as a function where the column name is a is the name of the function and the function input arguments declare dependencies or like other things that are required as input to compute that column. So, so inherently, so the, I guess there's this macro versus micro. So I, I call Hamilton a micro frame, a micro orchestration framework or a, or a micro framework, micro orchestration, a kind of view of the world versus macro, which is something that it isn't right it is we're writing functions that are declarative and so where the function name means something and the function input arguments also declare dependencies you're not writing scripts with hamilton there is a bit of well you don't call the functions directly you need to write some driver code and so with hamilton the other concept is like you have this driver right and so given the uh, functions that you have written so you have to write all your functions curated into python modules python modules are, you could say representations of parts of your DAG. So if you think visually and you think of nodes and edges, where functions are nodes and edges being kind of dependencies of what's required to be passed in, that's, you know, I guess the nuts and bolts of Hamilton. You write functions that go into modules, but then you need a driver, some driver script to then read those modules to build this kind of DAG representation of the world. That's mm-hmm. that code. That's, you could say, the script code that you would then kind of plug into any way that you run Python. I'll pause there. Any, Clarifications or going uh, along so far? Yeah, so just to make sure that like I understand like correctly, right? And consider me as like a very naive, let's say, practitioner around that stuff, right? 
So if I'm going to start developing using Hamilton, I'll start thinking in terms of columns, right? So I don't really, I don't start like from the concept of like having like a table or like something like a data frame, right? So technically I can create, let's say, independent columns and then I can mix and match to create outputs data sets in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so yeah, so Hamilton's roots wrangling, say, pandas data frames. So it's very easy. So going back to time seriousness and time series data, it's very easy to think in columns when you're processing this type of data. And so with, with Hamilton functionally, the function you can therefore think of as equivalent to representing a, a column, the f- framework forces you to only have one definition. So if you have a column name X, there's only one place that you can have X in your DAG, or there's only one node that can be called X to compute and create that, right? So Hamilton forces you to have one declaration of this. And so where the function name is kind of equivalent to the column name or an output you can get. But when you write that function, you have actually said what data comes into it. You've only just, you've only declared through the function arguments, the names of other columns or inputs that are required. Mm-hmm. So with Hamilton, you're kind of, you're not coupling context when you're writing these functions. And so therefore you kind of effectively are coming up with, you know, you, know, you could say a column definition or a feature definition that is kind of invariant to context. The way that Hamilton then stitches things together is through names, right? And so if you have a column named foo that takes in an argument bar, Hamilton, when you go to compute foo, will either look for a function called bar or it will expect some input called bar to come in. 100%. So, okay. So we chain together like functions, right? And yep. create, let's say, a new column, right? From mm-hmm. pre like columns. And you said like the context is not like that important. Like when I define a function, I just link, let's say, the inputs. Mm-hmm. But okay, coming like again, like from a little bit more of like, you know, traditional like programming, but how do you deal with types, for example, right? Like how do how how do I avoid having like issues with types and conflicts and stuff like that? Yeah. So Hamilton's pretty lightweight here. We so the function declares an output. An output each, when you write a function, it has to a declare a function output type, but also the input arguments also have to be type annotated. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Hamilton constructs a DAG of how things are chained together, it does a quick check of like, hey, do these function types match? You have the flexibility to kind of you know you know, fuzzy them as much as you like, but effectively, so that that's a day construction. Uh, at runtime, there's also a brief check like uh, on input to the DAG to make sure that, you know, the types match at least the expected kind of input arguments. But otherwise, there's a bit of an assumption that, you know, if, if you set a function outputs a pandas data frame, it's a pandas data frame. And the reason why we don't do anything too strict there is that like, well, uh, if you want to reuse your pandas code and run it as, you know, with pandas on Spark, Assuming you meet that subset of the API, but to everyone who's reading the code, it looks like a pandas data frame, but underneath it could be a pandas, so a PySpark data frame wrapped in the, the pandas on the API. So uh, effectively, you know, with Hamilton, the DAG kind of enforces types to ensure that functions match, but you have flexibility as to, you know, how you, if you really want to perturb that, you can write some code to kind of fuzzy that up. Otherwise, at runtime, there isn't much of a, 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 a an enforcement check. But then if you do really want that, there is the facility then to also what's called a check output annotation that you can add to a function that can 
do a runtime data quality check for you, which you could then, you know, check the type, check the, you know, the cardinality or you know, the values of a particular output. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool. And okay, so let's say I want to start playing around with Hamilton, right? And I already have some existing environment where I create like pipelines and I work with my data, right? How do I migrate to Hamilton? What do I have to do? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. So Hamilton, as I said, it runs anywhere that Python runs. So all you need is to really, you know, say you're say you're using pandas just for the sake of argument. You can replace however much code you want, you know, with Hamilton. So you can slowly, you could say, change parts of your code base and replace it with Hamilton code. I mean, the in terms of you know actually migrating, you know, the easiest is to. Yeah, save the input data, save the target output data, and then kind of, you know, write transforms and functions that then, you know, as you're migrating things to see whether they, yeah, the old way and the new way kind of line up and match up. But from an actual kind of practicality and, you know, POC perspective, like it's really up to you to scope, you know, how big of a chunk do you want to really you know, move to Hamilton, in which case, because all you need to do is just pip install the, the Hamilton library that's really the only impediment for you to kind of try or something is really the time to like chunk what code you want to translate to Hamilton. And, but otherwise, you know, there shouldn't be any system dependencies really stopping. Okay. That's super cool. And you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that, okay, well, it's one thing like to build something. It's a completely different thing, like to operate and maintain something. Right. And like, that's where a lot of pain exists today having let's say a pipeline handing this pipeline to a new engineer trying like to figure out like things that are going in there like updating that improving that it's hard and from my understanding like one of let's say the goals and the vision of Hamilton is to help with that and to actually bring let's say best practices that we have in software engineering also like when we work like with with data pipelines so how is this done? Let's say I've built it, right? I've used mm -hmm. Hamilton. I have now a pipeline that builds whatever the input of a service that takes like a model is. What's next? Like how, what kind of tooling I have around Hamilton that helps me, let's say, to go there and debug a pipeline or improve on pipeline and in general, maintain the pipeline? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. So one is I'm, I'm going to claim that, you know, a junior data scientist can write Hamilton code and no one's going to be terrified of inheriting it because, I mean, so part of, I guess, one of the, the things that kind of the framework forces you do is basically you need to you know, chunk things up into functions. One nice thing of chunking things up into functions is that everything is unit testable. Not to say that you have to add unit tests, but if you really want to, you can. And then you also have the function doc string always that you can add more, more specific kind of documentation. Now, because everything is kind of, stitched together by naming, you're also forced to name things, you know, slightly more verbosely that you can kind of pretty much read the function definition and kind of understand things. Right. And so I just want to set the context of like, you know, the base level of like what Hamilton gives you effectively, you can think of it's, you know, you're a senior software engineer in your back pocket without you having to hire one because, you know, you're, you're decoupling logic. It's making it reusable from day one because you're forced to curate modules. And then you have these great testing story and then one of the facilities that's built into the Hamilton framework natively is that you can output a graphers visualization of how actually everything connects or like how a particular execution part uh, looks right so with that on the base of that right I want to say 
if someone's coming in and making a change, right, there isn't much extra tooling you need at a low level, right, to uh, to be confident. So if someone's making a change to a particular piece of logic, it's very it's only a single function, right? Uh, the function you know who's downstream of that because you just need to find people, you know, grab the code base for whoever has that function input arguments, right? If you're adding something, you know you're not going to clobber anything or impact anything because it's a very separate thing that you're creating, right? Similarly, if you're deleting or removing things, you can also make the, you know, easily, you know, go through the code base to find things. So pull requests, therefore, are a little more easier and simpler because things are chunked in a way that like people understand, a lot of the changes already have all the context around them and they're not really, you know, they're not in disparate parts of the code base when a change is made. So, So therefore, in terms of debugging, right? Because you have this DAG structure, if there's an issue, it's pretty methodical to, to debug something, right? So if you see an output, it looks funky. Well, it's very easy for you to map to where the code where it should be. Uh, so if, I, if the logic and the function looks off, you can you can test it, right? Unit test it. But if it's not, then you know it's you know it's function input argument. So then you know you effectively then know okay what was what's what was run before this. So you can then logically step through the code base as to like okay well if it's not this then it's this if it's not this then it's this and you can set you know pdb set trace or you know debugging output within it right and so this is where i was saying it's kind of this paradigm forces this kind of simplicity or very structured or like you know a standardized way of approaching and kind of debugging stuff in which case therefore anyone new who's comes to the code base right they don't need to read a wall of text and be you know consuming from a fire hose instead they can, you know, if they want to see a particular output, they can use the tool to, you know, visualize that particular execution path and then just walk through the code there, right? Or with someone or someone's handing off, right? So I think it's it really simplifies a lot of the decisions and, you know, effectively encodes a lot of the best practices that you would naturally have in a good code base to make it easy for someone to, to come and update, maintain, and then also uh, debug. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the documentation of, like I was browsing like GitHub repo of Hamilton, and there's like a very interesting like matrix there that compares the features of Hamilton with other systems. And I think like it really helps someone to understand exactly like what Hamilton is. But I want to ask about like the code is. You mentioned at some point that the code is always like unit testable, right? And mm-hmm. it's something that like it's always true for Hamilton, mm-hmm. but it's not like for other systems. Mm-hmm. Like DBT, for example, or uh, Feast or um, Airflow. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, why with uh, Hamilton we can do that, right? And why we cannot with Airflow, for example? Yeah, yeah. It's very easy to, um, uh, in systems, so, so given a blank slate of Python, you can write a script, right? And so one of the things that's very easy and most you know, junior people do is they want to get as fastest from A to B as possible. In the data world, that means loading some data, doing some transforms, and then loading back out, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you think of the context that you have just coupled together to kind of do that, you, you know, have made an assumption of you know where the data is coming from. Uh, maybe it's of a particular format or type. The logic then is very much now coupled to that particular context. So if you, you know, most data scientists cut and paste code rather than refactoring it to, for reuse, right? And that's partly because of, of that kind of you know coupling of context, and then you've also you know, assumed what the outputs are, and so you could make that code always unit testable, but you need to think about it when you're writing it, right? Yeah. You need to structure things in a way that 
you know, because if you couple things or you write functions that take in that certain things, that means the unit test is a pain because you have to mock different, you know, data loaders, kind of APIs to kind of make it work. Whereas, you know, with Hamilton, you're really forced to really chunk things uh, separately, or at least if there's anything complex, it's actually, you know, contained in a single function in a single place, right? And, and, and so it is therefore much easier if, you know, to, if you need to write a unit test, to write it in Hamilton and have it maintainable. Whereas in the other context, you have to think about that, you know, as you're writing it, but most people don't. And so in which case, then it's a problem of inertia. And then people generally, you know, add to the code base to make it look like how it is. And so in which case the problem then just propagates unless you find that someone who, that one person, you know, there's generally one person in every company who really likes cleaning up code, you find them and they want to do it. But, you know, those people are a rarity, in which yeah. case, you know, for me, I'm more of a reframe the problem to make problems go away type of guy. And so in which case with Hamilton, it's like, yeah, reframe the problem a little bit by getting you to write code and set a start. But then all these other problems, you know, you, you just don't have to deal with because, you know, you, you, because you've, we've designed to, to write code in a certain way that always makes, you know, unit testing and documentation friendliness true. Yeah. And one more question on like unit tests. And I want to, I want you to ask this question. I want, I want to ask this question to you because you mentioned at the beginning, and it's like very true that many of the, like the practitioners in the ML and the data science domain, and that's also true, like for many of like the data engineers out there, don't necessarily come from like a software engineering background, right? So probably they are also like not exposed to mm -hmm. unit testing and why unit testing is important, right? So why is unit testing important for a data scientist? It's important if you have a particular logic that you want to ensure that A, you have written correctly and B, if someone changes that they don't, you know, break it inadvertently, right? And so I want to say it's not true that you always need unit tests for simple functions, right? It's mainly for the things you really want to kind of enshrine the logic for and also potentially help other people can understand, like, these are the bounds of the logic. So classic examples of this are like, I said Stitch Fix was you had a survey response to a particular question and you wanted to transform that survey response into a particular, you know, input or output, right? Mm -hmm. Unit test was a great way to encapsulate and kind of, you know, enshrine a bit, you know, of that logic, right? To ensure that like, hey, if something changes or there, or if there were assumptions that change, you could easily kind of understand and see whether that kind of test broke or not. Cool. So let's pause a little bit here, like about Hamilton. And I want to ask you because... We talked a lot about like Hamilton, but Hamilton is also like the seeds of um, a company that you built, right? Today. And I would like to hear from you a little bit about like this journey. How, you know, things started like from within like Stitch Fix. As you said, there was a problem there. You started like, we described like how you started like building Hamilton to the point of like today being like the CEO of a company that is building a product and a business on top of of this solution, right? So tell us a little bit about this experience, like how you decided like to do it, the good things around it, like whatever like made you happy so far. And if you can share also some of like the bitter parts of like doing this, because I'm sure it's not easy. That would be awesome. Sure. I went to Stanford, got bitten by the bug for the last decade. I've been thinking about starting a company. All right. In terms of, you know, how DagWorks got started and, and, you know, the idea for it, like 
we, we did a lot of build versus buy on the platform team at Stitch Fix. So we saw a lot of vendors who come in and and quite frankly, I was like, you know, I think we have actually better ideas or assumptions or, or, or even, you know, we could build a better product here. And so we built most things at Stitch Fix. Actually, for that reason, we only brought in a few things, right? And so uh, Hamilton actually started out more of, a, more of a branding exercise. And so part of it was actually, it was of the things my team built, it was also the easiest to kind of open source. But also from that perspective, it was also, I guess, the most interesting. So I do think it's actually pretty different a pretty different approach to than other people are taking. And so part of that was like, you know, I think it's unique and then just happened to be easier to open source than other things. And so we open sourced it. And the reaction from your know, people was like, yeah, like I, I honestly initially thought Hamilton was a bit of a, you know, it, it was a cute metaprogramming hack in Python to kind of get to work. But like, I was like, wasn't quite sure whether other people would think, get the same value out of it. Suffice to say, you know, people did which was exciting and then realizing you know like at stitch fix we had you know 100 plus data scientists to deal with but you know with the with open source it's kind of like wow you could actually have thousands of people you could potentially you know help and reach right and so that was invigorating from a you know personal perspective of like you know just being able to reach more people and you know and, and help more people so i think in, in, you know with open source there, there's the challenge of actually how do you start a business around it i mean if you look at other companies, you know, DBT, for example, you know, they didn't really take off until they were get three or four years outside of open source, right? Hamilton was actually built in 2019. We only open sourced it 18 months ago. Uh, I mean, I did know that was sticky because the teams that used it internally at Stitch Fix loved it, but, it was, you know, exciting to see its kind of adoption go. And then, and then so from that perspective, you know, seeing open source get adopted, me being, you know, excited by helping other people and then, you know, being thinking about companies for the last decade. I thought it was, you know, uh, now was a good time because I'm like, I still think I know something people don't, in which case, you know, that machine learning tech debt is going to come home to roost in the next few years of all the people who brought machine learning to production and now, you know, feeling the pains of, you know, vendor ops, as it's sometimes called, of, you know, stitching together all these uh, ML ops solutions. And then, uh, so timing, knowing something the market didn't, doesn't, and then, you know, having the passion for it was kind of roughly the, uh, the three things that let it, Elijah and myself, the other co-creator of Hamilton, kind of to start Dagworks. That's awesome. And one last quick question for me before I hand the microphone back to Eric. Where can someone learn more, both about Hamilton and the company? Yeah. So if you want to try out Hamilton, we have a website called tryhamilton.dev. It runs Pyodide because Hamilton is a small dependency footprint where you can actually run, you know, it load Python up in the browser and you can play around it without you having to install anything. Otherwise, for the Dagworks platform that we're building around Hamilton, you can kind of think of it as just at a high level, you know, Hamilton's technology, Dagworks platform is kind of a product around it. You can go to dagworks.io. And by the time that this releases, I think we should be, you know, we're taking off the off the beta wait list. And so if that's still there, do sign up. We'll get you on it quickly. Else, hopefully we'll have, you know, more of a self-service means to kind of play around with what we built on top of Hamilton. That's great. Eric, all yours. All right. Well, we have to ask the question, where did the name Hamilton come from? Good question. So, so at Stitch Fix, the team that we were building, you know, this four was, you know, this, I was going to say, this was pretty foundational. It was basically a rewrite of, of, of kind of how they wrote code and how they kind of pushed things. And so 
the team was called the Forecasting Estimation and Demand Team, or the Fed Team for short. And so I had also recently, you know, learned more about American history because the Hamilton musical <laughs> had gone. Sure, so I was like, yeah. oh, I was like, hey, what's foundational? What's foundational and associated from the Fed? Well, Alexander Hamilton created, you know, the actual Federal yeah. Reserve or actual yeah, yeah. Fed. And so then, you know, there were other names, right? But then I was, as I started thinking about it more, I'm like, well, Hamilton also, you know, the Fed team is also trying to model the business in a way. So there are Hamiltonian physics concept, concepts, right? And yeah. then the actual implementation of what we're doing is graph theory 101, effectively, right? And so from, so from computer science, there's also Hamiltonian concepts there. So I was like, oh, great, you know, Hamilton's uh, probably, you know, the, the best name for it since it helps tie together all these things. I love it. Well, Stefan, this has been such a wonderful time. We've learned so much. And thank you again for giving us a little bit of your day to chat about DAGs, Hamilton, Python, open source, and more. Thanks for having me. It was a good time in terms of being you know, more succinct on responses. I think you know this is my lesson I've learned from this podcast. I need to kind of work, <laughs> work on that a little bit more. But otherwise, yeah, much appreciated for having me on. And um, thanks for the conversation. Anytime. You were great. But Costas, I loved, I loved this show because we covered a variety of topics with Stefan from Dagworks and Hamilton. You know, I think one of the most fascinating things about the show to me was we kind of started out thinking we were going to talk a lot about DAGs, right? Because Dagworks, you know, sort of the name of the company is focused on DAGs. But really what's interesting is that it's not necessarily a tool for DAGs like you would think about Airflow necessarily. It's actually a tool for writing clean, testable uh, ML code that produces a DAG. And so the DAG is almost sort of a consequence of a, an entire methodology, you know, which is Hamilton, which is absolutely fascinating. And so I really appreciated the way that Stefan sort of got at the heart of the problem, it's not like we need another DAG tool, right? We actually need a tool that solves sort of problems with complex growing code bases at the core. And a DAG is sort of a natural consequence of that and a way to view the solution, but not the only one. So I think that was my big takeaway. I think it's a very interesting, elegant solution mm -hmm. uh, or way to approach the problem. Yeah. DAGs appear everywhere with these kind of problems, right? Like anything that's like close to a workflow or there is some kind of like dependency there, there's always a DAG somewhere, right? And uh, like similarly, like again, like uh, Hamilton, the same way that if you think about like DBT, right? Like DBT also is a DAG, right? It's every DBT project is a graph that connects models with each other. The difference, of course, is that we have like DBT, which is lives like in the SQL world. And then we have Hamilton, which lives like in the Python world. And it's also like targeting different, a different audience, right? So that's like at the end, like what Hamilton is trying to do is like to bring the value of, um, let's say the guardrails that uh, a framework like DBT is offering like to the BI and the analytical and the analytics professionals out there to the ML community, right? Because... They also have that, and probably they have it also like in deeper complexity compared to, let's say, the BI world. Just because by nature, like ML models and features have like deeper, deeper 
dependencies to each other. So it's very interesting to see how like the patterns emerge, you know, like in different sides of the field, like of the industry, but at each core, they remain the same, right? Right. So yeah, I think everyone like should go and take a look at Hamilton. They also have like a like a sandbox like playground where you can try it online if you want and started like building a company on top of that and so, like any feedback is going to be like super um, useful for the Hamilton folks. So I would encourage everyone like to go and like do it. Definitely. And while you're checking out Hamilton, I think it's tryhamilton.dev. Head over to Data Stack Show, click on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Data Stack Show. Tell a friend if you haven't, and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.